Well, this morning I'm going to take a, just a short pause, one week, uh, in our study of the book of Romans. And I'd like for you to turn over to James chapter 4. James chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 6 this morning. I shared from this text a few years ago, and I hope that it does the same today as it did then, and that is to challenge us, as I just mentioned, to look within ourselves, to, to motivate us, to examine our own lives, to examine our own attitudes, okay? Yes, we know this text was written to a group of folks in the first century, but as you see us going through it, you'll notice how it applies very well for all of us today. Now, as all of you are aware of, there are instances in the church today where people don't necessarily agree on everything. And sometimes that has divided people. If you've been involved in the church for most of your life, you all know that unfortunately many of these divisions can get ugly. I'm sure some of you may have been in churches where you've had issues, church splits, struggles, and whatnot. People seemingly can be friends for many years, almost, I mean, agree on everything, worship together for a long time, and then some, some small, minute problem comes up, and holy smokes, you'd think it was World War II. It's like, what happened to that fellowship? What happened to that community, or whatever word you want to throw out there for today? Where, where'd it go? I would venture to say that probably about 25%, that's just my guess, but probably about 25% of the churches in this town, and there are many churches in this town, but probably about 25% of them have had splits over the years on such issues. Uh, most of us can probably, if you've been involved in that, you can look back and you can say, how ridiculous. Whatever issue it was, you're going, are you serious? How ridiculous was that split? Well, if you've ever personally been a part of a church where things have, have gotten ugly or relationships have gone sour, you know that many times uh, it, it ruins people. Sometimes it destroys lifelong relationships. And therefore, as a pastor, one of the biggest things to watch out for in the church is to make sure this doesn't happen, to make sure there's no division, to make sure there's no disunity. Now, that doesn't mean that everybody has to agree on, on, uh, on every little thing. But when you have people, typically immature people, but when you have those folks within the church who are disgruntled for one reason or another. They tend to recruit others, and before long, the church is in this constant cleanup mode. The larger the church, the harder that is. Well, this is where our text is going to begin this morning, and we're going to progress on from there. Hopefully, once again, this, this text is going to challenge us, maybe help us to avoid these kinds of situations in the future, but once again, it's a time to, to examine ourselves because the problem with those churches and relationships, this may be a shock to you, the problem is us. It's us, see. If you're there in James chapter 4, read with me verses 1 through 6. 
He says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but you don't get it. You kill and you covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you do ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you not think Scripture says without reason that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intently? But he gives us more grace. And this is why Scripture says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So dropping back to verse 1 this morning, notice the question. He says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? In other words, these troubling relationships with people, whether they're in the home, whether they're on the job, or certainly whether they're in the church, how does this happen? Well, to make sure he covers all bases here, James uses Two words, just two. He uses two words to describe the problems, fights and quarrels. And I know everybody has probably different translations here, but the very first word there, fights, is talking basically about big problems that come up, trouble, maybe even something that causes a crisis. The, the literal meaning of the word means a state of war. It's ugly. <laughs> it's a big issue. The second word, quarrels, on the other hand, it's more talking about disputes or smaller battles, strife, contention between people. And so what he's doing here, he's saying that whether it's huge or whether it's just a small conflict, the question he asks is, what causes them? What's the cause of these things that take place? And of course, he answers his own question there, still in verse 1, what does he say? He says, don't they come from your desires that battle within you? Now, if you're like me, you'll say, okay, I'm good with that, but that's a little bit vague, right? What are those desires that battle within us? Well, actually, if you back up just a few verses, we can see. Back up there to chapter 3. I'm going to read verses 13 through 16 real quick there in James chapter 3. He says, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such, and he has in quotes, such <clears throat> wisdom, that's wisdom of the world, such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but it's earthly, it's unspiritual, it's of the devil. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. We'll stop right there. Now, based on this context, 
I believe those are the desires that he's talking about just five verses later. Different chapters, but just five verses later, I think that's what we're talking about. This is what is battling within us that is causing what he calls fights and quarrels. I mean, just look at the two words there that he mentions in verse 14. First one there is envy. You might have the translation that says jealousy. Now that word describes those who are engulfed in a self-serving worldly wisdom. I talked to you about how there's wisdom from above and then there's worldly wisdom, okay? These are people who are engulfed in self-serving worldly wisdom and they resent anyone or anything that comes between them and their own objectives, okay? The second word you see there in that verse are selfish ambition, Okay, it's very closely related. And this speaks simply of personal gratification, self-fulfillment at any cost. Kind of the concept, selfish ambition, right? Now, folks, I can only think of three words that fit those together. I'm going to give you the first, and you help me out with the second and third. Number one, me. What's the second word? What's the third? I, me, myself. And I. Folks, when your entire inner being is focused on nothing but yourself, you're going to have a real hard time getting along with others. How many people know that? (laughs) The other ones are liars. Well, we all know that, don't we? Sadly, we do. Go back to chapter 4, verse 1. He says, or he uses the word desires, right? Don't they come from those desires that battle within you? The word desires in the Greek is the word hedone. It's where we get our word hedonism. Hedonism. Okay? And that views pleasure as the chief goal of life. Hedonism, it's pleasure. That is what you strive for. Even the English dictionary got it right. It says it is a devotion, especially a self-indulgent one, to pleasure and happiness as a way of life. Folks, you put that word together with envy and selfish ambition, and they fit together like a glove. Hedonism, hedone, and envy and selfish ambition. So why do we have fights and quarrels with others, with many people who attend the same church, those we say that we love, because we can't take our eyes off of ourselves. When life revolves around good old number one, we have problems. Folks, we don't, we don't have to be theologians here to know that these are not characteristics of a man or a woman of God. These are not unique qualities that Christians desire, are they? Mm -mm. Turn over real quick, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. The church in Corinth, by the way, was a really struggling church. 
go through one day when you have the time. Just look through and look at all the things that Paul chews them out for, okay? You'll have a lot. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, I'm just going to read verses 1 through 3. He says, Brothers, I could not address you as spiritual, but as worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not yet ready for it. Indeed, you're still not ready. You are still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling, those words sound familiar, don't they? For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere men? Hmm. Paul says it's worldly. Going back to James, he says it's worldly, fleshly, carnal, whatever you have in front of you. He says they're acting like mere men. Or I like how the, the NLT, the New Living, says it. You're living like people of the world, is what he says. And so fighting, quarreling, backbiting, you can probably throw in slander and gossip if you wanted to. They all come from envy and selfish ambition that we allow to well up within ourselves. It's easy to do in the world we live in. So back here in James chapter 3, we really have one of two choices to make, okay? In verse 14, we have harboring those things in our hearts, right? Going into verse 15, which he says is earthly, it's unspiritual. And here's a tough one, and it's of the devil. That's your first option. Your second option is what it says here in verse 17 in chapter 3. But he says the wisdom that comes from heaven, this is a contrast from what he was talking about, the wisdom of the world. He says it's pure, it's peace-loving, it's considerate, it's submissive, it's full of mercy and good fruit, it's impartial, and it is sincere. And so basically, we have to simply just literally just ask ourselves, where do we fall? Whose side are we on? I know what side you want to be on, but which side are you? Which side are you living? Which side are you harboring? Right? There's only two sides. There's not 15 different guesses, see? But we have to ask ourselves that question. Let's continue in verse 2. You want something, but don't get it. You kill and you covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. So here you have the actions of those words again. Envy and selfish ambition. Here are the actions. Me, 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 it's all about me. It's what he's saying. He says you want something, but you don't get it. You cannot have what you want. That's another way of saying you don't get it your way. Despite those of you my age who grew up, do you remember the Burger King commercials? Have it your way. You know it, right? Doesn't work that way in the real world. And the problem is we don't like that. <laughs> See? 
Now, those three words that start verse 2, you want something. Now, you may have a translation that says you desire or you lust, okay? It literally means an anxious self-seeking, an anxious self-seeking. I got to have it. That's what that means. I got to have it. Or I got to have it my way. Folks, when a person wants something so bad and it's not fulfilled, as you know, sometimes that person lashes out in different ways, don't they? And I don't just mean a little three-year-old who doesn't get it their way either. John MacArthur points out and he says, when desires for the wrong kinds of pleasure are unfulfilled, they wage an external war. An external war. What is that in this verse? Well, he says, quarreling, fighting, coveting, one more, and maybe even killing. Do you see that? Now, most of us understand the whole quarreling and fighting and, and coveting, but the killing we have a hard time with sometimes. We don't like that. Now, if you're talking about generalities in the world that we live in, Unfortunately, that killing is a reality. People have been killed, as you know, for their Air Jordans. <laughs> They've had their life taken from them because I want those. Others have been shot dead for the money in their pocket. People have been shot at. Restaurants have, have uh, been destroyed. Why? simply because they didn't get what they want. Their order was wrong. I ordered a large fry. And yet they'll go that far. Verse 1, the battle's within you, right? People can go that far. If you don't believe me, just watch the news two days in a row. Watch it and you'll find out. But here... James is addressing people who are believers. In the first three chapters, he calls them brothers. He calls them uh, 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 dear brothers many times. And therefore, there are some people who read this text and they say, I, I don't think the word kill fits in the context. It must mean hatred. And that's because hatred is a prerequisite for killing. We know that from 1 John chapter 3 as well as Matthew chapter 5. Now others feel that, well, I think it means you envy. Because if you change just two letters in the Greek text, that's what it would say. Well, number one, we can't just change letters in the Greek text. And number two, there are no manuscripts that say that. Some say, well, it's probably a Murderous hatred. In other words, it's, it's an extreme destructive behavior. That's what that word killing means. And then lastly, you have some just, you know what? They take the word literally. Saying that James is not referring to a specific situation here with these people. He's indicating what can happen when men desire pleasure, self, rather than In other words, envy, hatred, wanting something really bad, you bet it can lead to murder. 
It can go that far. Think of the Pharisees just for a second. Most of us know the Pharisees, right? Find about them in the gospel. These, these men lusted for the personal satisfaction of having this reputation of holiness. Look at me as I walk down the street. Look at my tassels. Do you know how much of the law that I know? Do you know how strict that I am? They just lusted for people to recognize them as holier than thou, right? These people murdered Christ, not just because of blasphemy, because, but they hated Jesus because he unmasked their hypocrisy. He let everybody there go. <laughs> They're not quite near that holy. See? They killed him, Right? Absalom, he wanted to rule over Israel so bad he was willing to kill his father David, wasn't he? Yep. Folks, no matter where you stand on this word killing, along with these other faults that are given, it can happen when there's something in your life that's more important than God. When there's something dwelling within you that is focused more on you, more on your pleasures, more on self than God. When having it your way is your highest priority, oh, it's going to affect everything around you. See, when people have such great desires or, or lusts for things and don't get what they want, it ends up in, in, in a, we'll just call it fighting of some sort. Maybe it's a marriage problem. Maybe it's an, maybe it's an issue on the job, family, politics, national conflicts. Have you watched the media recently with the overturning of Roe v. Wade and sending it back to the states? Have you seen what people are willing to do because they don't get it their way? You don't have to watch too much to find it, right? And yes, folks, even splitting the church with the people that you say you love. See? So these people here were not able to obtain what they wanted. And the reason was that they were going after it the wrong way, James says. According to verse 2, what should they have done? What does he say? Ask God. He just simply says, ask God. Now, what do you think is the biggest reason why people don't ask God? It's because, listen, it's because they think they can get things done on their own. You might put it this way, I don't need God. I can do this. How many times has something happened in your life that kind of an issue, you never even thought about praying once until you failed or you failed and this got worse and they got mad. and went, Oh man, shoot, maybe I should have prayed about that. <laughs> I want to get it done on my own. I can take care of this myself. I'm self-sufficient. That's why. They think they have the ability to get it done how they want. They want it their way. These people don't seem to understand what James said earlier in chapter 1, verse 17, that every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights. Everything, he says, comes from God. Why are you not seeking him? And I'll tell you why. Because sometimes we know what his answer is going to be. 
and we don't like it. If there's a situation that you know you should pray about, and you know darn well that God's going to say you need to humble yourself, you know his word says you need to humble yourself, but that doesn't coincide with me punching him in the mouth. That's just, mm, boy, it just doesn't go well. I don't want to hear what God has to say because I'm not going to like it. I want to do it my way. Sometimes we know what God says. We know what the scriptures teach. We know what his Holy Spirit is leading us, but we don't like that. Because we're selfish people. We want to do what we want to do. See? So number one, I can take care of it myself. Number two, even if I did ask, I don't think I'm going to like what God has to say. See? So therefore, he goes into verse 3, and he says, for some of them, even if they do ask, they do not receive. Why? What does he say? He says, when you ask, you don't receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. But didn't Christ say in Matthew 7, 7, ask and it shall be given to you? For everyone who asks receives? I mean, come on, man, what's up with that? That's people constantly taking Scripture out of context. That's what's up with that. God is not your genie. The word faith movement likes to believe that you can just tell God what to do, and he has to do it. If I have enough faith, he has to do it. As if we can just tell God what he has to do. It doesn't work that way, folks. We must remember, folks, that these statements are focused on people who are living within the will of God. Therefore, ask yourself, by the way, for these people who say, well, I, you know, God's word tells me that I can ask and receive. Really? What are you asking for? Millions of dollars, your Lamborghini, the $50 million house with 27 bedrooms, a $50 million Learjet. Let me ask you this. Where do you think their heart is? Do you think it's in the right place? Hmm. Hopefully it took you about a half a second to say, I don't think so. Right? Folks, it shows right here in this text that you don't just ask for something and get it. Understand the will of God. That, I mean, don't... We would say, if we were all sitting here, if I asked the question, how many, how many of you want the will of God in your life, we would all go, But when it comes to something specific, all of a sudden you're going, Hmm. Right? Give you a few verses. Romans chapter 8, verse 27. It says, And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because, listen, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. Catch that part? One of my favorites, 1 John 5, 14. Donna, you get on this this week. This is the confidence we have in approaching God. That if we ask anything, you know what it says? According to His will, He hears us. That's confidence. We have confidence in that. See, in Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, 
We all know this. Jesus says, and this is how you should pray, right? Our Father, which is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. What's the next one? Your will be done. That's not my prayer. That's Jesus teaching how to pray. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We forget that part, don't we? Shoot. One more Gospel of John, chapter 14, verses 13 and 14. Jesus is preparing his disciples for when he departs. Soon uh, he's going to be dying, right? He tells them that he's going to still provide for them. But watch how he does it. He says, And I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. Think about that next time you pray. Does it bring glory to God, right? You may ask anything in my name, and I will do it. Folks, in my name is not something you tack on at the end of your prayer. If all I do is say, in Jesus' name, it's mine. It's coming my way. It means that you're going to be praying in that which is consistent with the purpose of God and the will of God. See? The point is that God doesn't honor prayers that are done with selfish motives. Because it's not about you. It's not about me. It's about him. When you pray, do you try to change the mind of God? You don't have to answer that. Is that what you think sometimes when you pray? Greed is idolatry. And you're just thinking about your own pleasures. And therefore, it's an insult to God Almighty that you're coming before and doing nothing but seeking for your own pleasures. God says here, well, there's a reason you don't have what you want. See? And so now that James has revealed to them all these evil desires that we just got through talking about here, he brings it home in verse 4, saying, you guys are spiritually unfaithful. Notice what he says, verse 4, you adulterous people. Don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Folks, those are some pretty strong words, aren't they? They really are. Now, most of us like to, we're talking to them, not me. I, I have nothing to do with that text, right? That's what we're thinking. But that's a whole lot different than the nine times he calls them brothers in the first three chapters. Now he says, not brothers, you adulterers. See? That kind of language, by the way, is intended to kind of smack somebody upside the head to awaken them, right? We've all seen it. What's the matter with you? <laughs> but that's kind of, of what we're getting at is when he, when he does that. The word adulterer, and by the way, James is writing to Jews, in case you didn't know that, believing Jews, James chapter 1, he's writing to the 12 tribes that are scattered throughout the nation, okay? So he uses this because this is what the Jews were used to, okay? Having this covenant relationship with God, they were always represented as being espoused to God. No different than you and me, we are called the bride of Christ, right? As Christians. 
Okay, therefore, these, these people would be very familiar with this word because this is what Israel was called. Whenever they were unfaithful to God, you adulterers. Not literal adultery, it's spiritual adultery. Ezekiel 16, verses 30 through 32. I'm going to read this in the New Living Translation because it just states it very well. What a sick heart you have says the sovereign Lord, to do such things as these, acting like a shameless prostitute. You built your pagan shrines on every street corner and your altars to idols in every square. In fact, you have been worse than a prostitute, so eager for sin that you have not even demanded payment. Yes, you are, he calls Israel, an adulterous wife, who takes in strangers instead of her own husband. Jeremiah 3.20, But like a woman unfaithful to her husband, so you have been unfaithful to me, O house of Israel. Do you see what he's getting at here? (laughs) Why he uses those words. And so because of envy and selfish ambition, right? The whole me, myself, and I attitude, which causes fights and quarrels, means they're acting like, 1 Corinthians 3, mere men. They're claiming to be on God's side, but their actions are showing otherwise. Folks, we can talk about things all we want. We can claim, we can profess whatever we want. But our actions are going to be the reality. That's the evidence. We're not fooling God. You might fool your neighbor, but you're not fooling God. James says here in verse 4 that this is friendship with the world, which he says by default is a hatred towards God. That's a tough word. Hatred towards God. God. And then he says, if anyone chooses to be a friend of the world, he becomes an enemy of God. The word hatred and enemy are two forms of the exact same word in the Greek. You're an enemy of God. Oh, no, but I'm not. Well, you claim you're not, but he says your actions speak otherwise. As I said earlier, those are pretty strong words. Hatred towards God, he's my enemy. And if you notice in the text, you'll notice nowhere does he says they're axe murderers. Because that's what we think, isn't it? We, well, these got to be the worst of the worst people. Hatred toward God? Wow. But he doesn't say that, does he? Mm-mm. One commentator says, to have a warm, familiar attitude towards this evil world is to be on good terms with God's enemy. It is to adopt the world's set of values and want what the world wants instead of choosing according to divine standards. Folks, if that doesn't raise the value of sin... I don't know what does. The church today, we tend to dumb down sin. 
unless it's, of course, the big ones, right? In our minds, we always have those big ones, whatever your list is of big sins. But he doesn't do that here. When you read verses 1 through 3, you don't see those big sins, do you? Most of us don't read those things and say, well, let me think. Um, Selfish ambition, things like that, envy, wanting what I want, that's Makes me an enemy of God? You, you calling me hatred toward God when I do that? That's what he says. Once again, you and I like to pawn it off on, well, that's hatred of God. That's not me. That's people who do all these horrible things. I'm just reading the text, folks. Going into verse 5, this verse is extremely... Uh, hard to understand in the Greek because of the way that it's written. Uh, scholars differ uh, on different interpretations, and they're, they're all seemingly legit. But he says this, Or do you think Scripture says without reason that the Spirit he caused to live in us envies intently? If I'd have read that to you in the Greek, you'd have went, What? I mean, it's bizarre how it reads. Some have the word spirit to mean the Holy Spirit. Some have the human spirit. There are some scholars who say God is the jealous party, and some, of course, say that it's you and me. But I think based on studying this text, I believe the word spirit here is our spirit, our human spirit, our inner man, if you will. And the envying is coming from us, not from God. Why do I believe that? Because it's been the context for the whole play, all of chapter 3, I don't see any reason to change that. Yes, you could read it this way also in the text, but, but if it goes and it flows with the text, that's what I'm sticking to. Because context is everything. See, that's important. One commentator says this. He agrees, and he phrases the verse this way. Listen to what he says. Don't you know that you yourself are living proof of the veracity of Scripture, which clearly teaches that the natural man has a spirit of envy? In other words, folks, this is a reprimand. This verse is saying you are a walking testimony of what Scripture has already told us, and that is that we are envious people. In other words, you're proving to me what the Bible already says. We're jacked up people. We're screwed up. We're sinful people. That's what he's saying. That's the problem. You're just proving what Scripture's already said. And therefore, he closes, and I will do the same with this. Even though this is the case, dealing with our human nature, as I just read in verses 1 through 5, there's a lot going on there. Look at verse 6. What's the first word in verse 6? But, whew, oh, we needed that word there, didn't we? But, we, we needed that one. But, he gives us more grace. And that is why scripture says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. He's saying that God's grace is bigger than any pride, God's grace is bigger than any envying, any coveting, any selfish ambition. It's huge. 
little caveat, but to get it, he says, you better humble yourself before Almighty God. Because why? What does he say? Because he opposes the proud. See, he only gives grace to the humble. The humble person is, is willing to submit to God's desires for himself. Yeah, but Darren, I, I really like my desires. I've got a plan. Well, whose plan do you want, yours or God's? Humble people are willingly submitting to God's desire for themselves rather than proudly insisting on their own aspirations for pleasure. But the point is, no matter how messed up you and I are, no matter how far we have fallen, God says, humble yourselves. Come before him and make the changes that only he can help you to make. Remember how we started this morning. What causes division amongst the body of Christ? What causes these things that are going on within us? What causes disgruntled Christians to recruit others to bring disunity into the church? It's when we focus on ourselves. And that's it. It's when we're not getting what we want. People aren't accepting my way as the answer. Folks, if relationships are important to you, if your family is important to you, if the church that you attend is important to you, then know that God's grace can handle it. God's grace is bigger than the screwed up person than we all are. But we must humble ourselves and come before God. Everything we looked at in verses 1 through 5, which to be honest with you, is a pretty ugly case. It is. Not very often he says, oh yeah, well that's hatred toward God. You are an enemy of God. An enemy? What are you kidding me? I'm a child of God. That's not how you're acting. There's a lot of ugliness there. But he says, lay it aside, humble yourself before Almighty God and get it right. It doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't matter how ugly it is because God's bigger and he has more grace. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, that you have more grace. Some of us don't want to thank you for what we looked at in verses 1 through 5 because a lot of it just describes us, describes sometimes our own heart, our own attitude, our own judgment. We are a selfish people. I've said that many times from this podium and we struggle, and it gets ugly. And sometimes we don't even recognize how bad it is. And that's usually because we're comparing ourselves with somebody else instead of just looking to, Lord, what do you desire? What do you want for me? Lord, this is tough for all of us here. It's tough to humble ourselves. But God, lead us in that direction. Use your Holy Spirit. Use your word to teach us, to change us, to be those people you want us to be, to honor you with our lives. That when people see us, they would never, ever even contemplate an enemy of God. But they would see us as a child of God, striving to live for you. Help us to do so, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.